Amen. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 18 while I'm chatting, this is our ongoing series. We've been working through Luke for 18 months or something now, and we're, uh, we're in the, into the last quarter, really, I think, aren't we? Um, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 18, just a few verses from verses 31 to 34. It's just a small segment you'll see in your Bible. If you've got it on, you've brought your Bible with you, you've got it on your phone, wherever it'll be. It's just a small section on there. Um, what I want to talk about this morning is the fact that there's been some heavy stuff this morning, and it needs to be, because Christianity is not some cutesy tale about a kind God who's nice to us, and therefore we need to be nice and kind people. That's not Christianity, and that's sometimes people's misunderstanding of what Christianity is. People being kind because they know a kind God. That is not, it's not what Christianity is. Christianity is the world's greatest romance between holy God and fallen man. Man who is so fallen that we treat him with utter contempt often, disdain, um, we uh, abject vile abuse sometimes, ab- abject apathy sometimes, just pretending or assuming that he doesn't even exist. That's our treatment of him, isn't it? And it's, we're so fallen to the point that when he stepped into our material world to break the hold of sin and death over us, he stepped in to rescue us, what did we do? We killed him. That's what we're going to look at this morning. It's easier to get rid of the one telling us about the problem than actually face the problem itself, isn't it? Shut him up. We can get on and do, do what we enjoy doing. And yet he still, God himself, uses our criminal act, killing God. He uses that as the means to make us whole and bring us home, doesn't he? The cross. What a God. It's the greatest love story ever told. But one steeped in our brokenness, but also steeped in his rich mercy. Christianity is not some cutesy tale. And Jesus, in today's passage, he explicitly spells this out to the disciples. Who he is, what he's about to do. And so, where we've reached now in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is on the final leg of his journey to the cross, basically. It's all, it's all about to happen. Um, And he's been preparing the disciples along the way. People have become followers. They're believing in him for who he is. And he's been hinting along the way about what this is all about. This isn't just some nice ministry of walking around, preaching and healing the sick. There's more to this. There's more to why why he came. And he's been hinting along the way, but now he's saying it out loud. I'm going to be killed. And it's in this that we find this weighty impact of the full gospel again. Before we've even reached the cross itself, we're going to be dealing with that in the coming months. But even today, it's good just to reflect on quite what the implications of all this are. So let's just read from verse 31. Um, It says, And taking the twelve, the disciples, the immediate closest disciples, taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles... And will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Just a small batch of verses. Uh, there's, there's three aspects of this I want to um, contend with this morning. I want to walk us through. 
I've made them all beginning with M. You know, I like my alliteration. I like words. All begin with M. First one's the moniker, as in the nickname, the, the name that Jesus uses for himself. He calls himself Son of Man here. It'd be good to look at that and just understand really what he means by that phrase. The moniker, the mission. Jesus details what he's about to do and why he came. We're going to walk through that. We're going to walk through the passion, effectively. The passion is Jesus' walk to the cross, his journey to the cross. Uh, the moniker, the mission, and we're going to look at the mystery. Even after all that, and Jesus has said it out loud. I'm going to do this, and this is going to happen to me. They still don't understand it. <laughs> we're going to look at the mystery of it as well. The moniker, the mission, the mystery. So first of all, the moniker. The Son of Man. This is what Jesus calls himself, doesn't he? He's referring to himself as the Son of Man. Now, people throughout the Gospels, we see them, they refer to him by various names. They call him Master, they call him Rabbi, Teacher, they call him Lord. And sometimes they also call him Son of God, which is different to Son of Man, isn't it? They call him Son of God. Uh, Or, if they're not fans of his, they'll question his agreement with that. Are you saying you're the Son of God? They ask him that question. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But Jesus doesn't call himself the Son of God. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, on the surface of what those say, Son of God, Son of Man, on the surface, that does make sense. It sounds like one is referring to his divinity, Son of God. Well, that must be talking about his divinity. And the Son of Man is referring to his humanity because he is, after all, fully God and fully man. So that makes sense. Son of God, Son of Man, Fully divine, fully human. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? On the surface, that makes sense. But there's far more to both phrases than we actually understand. They mean different to that, and they mean more than that. It's good just to contend with this. Andrew Wilson is one of our New Frontiers pastors in Eastbourne and Catford, and that sentence does make sense, just trust me. Um, But he's really, really helpful. He's got a big brain, and he's really good at teaching on these kind of subjects. And he he walks through this. I can point you to some resources if you want to know more. But he says, he describes it like this. It seems like Jesus is being very humble and kind of downgrading his title. He's almost saying, what you say isn't wrong. I am the Son of God, but let's not be so grandiose about it. Let's call me the Son of Man. That's That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? It sounds like he's downgrading. Not Son of God, just call me Son of Man. Sounds, sounds like he's just being very humble. In fact, it's the opposite. Son of man is an upgrade on son of God. And what I mean is this. The phrase son of God, uh, that and the title Christ are often used together. Um, Christ means anointed one, God's anointed one, God's coming rescuer, God's Messiah. Um, anointed one in Greek is Christos, which is where we get the word Christ from. Jesus Christ, it's not his surname. His surname is Bar-Joseph, son of Joseph. But we call him Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one. And the Hebrew version of that is Messiah. It all means the same thing. He's the coming rescuer, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And Jewish sects would often use the, the title son of God as being synonymous with that. They'd refer to their coming Messiah as the son of God. That's where that phrase comes from there it's all interchangeable so of course the Jewish people in this context at the time they would be asking is Jesus the Messiah is he the son of God so when they're asking are you the son of God they're asking are you the Messiah are you the coming rescuer that's what they're effectively asking they're not just referring to his divinity but son of man it's very interesting that Jesus doesn't adopt that title of son of God along with them 
He doesn't disagree with it. And it's not to say he isn't the expected Messiah. He very much is. And he's not afraid to tell them that they're right when they ask him if he is. Are you the son of God? Yes, I am. But his preferred title for himself is son of man. Now, this is not Jesus just merely being humble, nor is he reminding us that not only is he divine, he's also human. That's not what he's doing here. It's something way, 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 way bigger than that. If you look at Daniel chapter 7 from verse 13, there's a prophet from, um, from, uh, who prophesies, Daniel himself prophesies hundreds of years before. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, the Father, Father God. And he, the Son of Man, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And so often when Jesus, in fact, when Jesus uses this title for himself, he's often, the, the wording around it, the sentences around it, Jesus is referring to this prophecy quite often. And coming soon in Luke chapter 21, we'll see when Jesus is talking about his future return, his second coming, he says, people will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So Jesus, calling himself this particular title, Son of Man, he's not merely referencing his humanity, nor is he deflecting away from him being the Messiah, but instead, as well as all that, He's especially pointing out his equality with the Most High God himself. He's saying, I'm the Son of Man. I am the divine ruler of eternity with dominion and glory and a kingdom. I'm not just your coming rescuer. You need to realize who your coming rescuer is. I'm God. That's what he's saying by using this phrase. And the people at the time would have understood that because they're steeped in the scriptures as we, what we call the Old Testament. They understand this phrasing. So when, it's interesting. When he's on trial before the high priest, that'll be coming up in Luke chapter 22. You see it in Matthew 26. Jesus is asked, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus gives a nod and basically it's like, yep, what you said. But then he also says out loud, in fact, I'm also the Son of Man. And it's at that point that the high priest has the world's biggest hissy fit and loses his marbles. And the crowd pounce on him, spit at him, and uh, they hit him and they send him to the Romans to be sentenced. It's not because he agreed with the fact that he's the son of God. It's because he said, but I'm also the son of man. That's when they lost the plot. It's like it's son of man is, in fact, if anything, it's bigger than son of God. Jesus claiming the title of Son of Man rather than Son of God, that is the most outrageous one of the two. We have to help carry the weight of this title. And yet again, years later in the book of Acts, when Stephen, he's before the crowd and he's also on trial for claiming that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is God. It's at the point when he's done this huge, great sermon. But it's at the point, they all sit and listen to it. It's at the point... When he claims that Jesus, he calls Jesus the son of man, that's when the crowd rushes on him and stones him to death. He called him the son of man. Did you hear that? Have him. That's the phrase that catches everybody's hearts. The son of man is not a smaller title than son of God. In fact, if anything, so much bigger. And understanding this language then helps us realize the striking shock of how this glorious king, eternal king, is about to be treated. Jesus said, I'm the son of man, and this is what's going to happen to me. So let's carry that through into the next 
sentence or two that Jesus then says. Because when we talk about the mission, Jesus spells out what's about to happen and why he came. Verse, 20, uh, verse 32 says that I, the Son of Man, God himself, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. Humans, created beings, spitting at, stripping the flesh off, flogging, and executing the perfect, endless, majestic, all-powerful God. Now, if that isn't shocking to you, I don't know what is. <laughs> I can't help you. Do you know what I mean? It's like, look at this. Let's, let's walk through this. It's not easy. It's not nice. But let's walk through this sentence, this shameful treatment of the Most High God, the Son of Man. First of all, even just the first bit, uh, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. This is God's own chosen people trying to wash their hands of the problem. Oh, if we give it to them, they can deal with it, and it's not our problem anymore, right? When they didn't wash their hands of it, because giving Jesus to the Romans um, to deal with, that does not absolve the Jews of his murder. They're still complicit, <laughs> aren't they? So the question is, who killed Jesus, the Jews or the non-Jews? The answer is yes. Humanity did. Who's seen um, The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson film? It's brutal, but it's necessary, effectively, isn't it? And there's, there's a moment in that when Jesus is on the cross and he's been nailed to the cross. They're driving the nails through his wrists. And there's a shot of a hand with a hammer coming down to, to hit the nail. That hand is Mel Gibson's hand. He says, I need to do it. Because he said, the question is, who killed Jesus? The answer is, I did. So that's his hand on screen, hammering the nail in. Who killed Jesus? We did. They can't point the finger. The Jews can't point the finger at the Romans. The Romans can't point the finger at the Jews. We can't point the finger at them. We did. Our sin today is equally responsible. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. He's God's way of dealing with our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And what he means by that is not just at, even at that time everywhere, but for all time. Our sin that nailed him to the cross. And the Jews tried to wash their hands of him. We can't either. We're equally complicit. So delivered over is bad enough. But then also what comes next? He will be mocked. In the process of murdering God, it wasn't done with regret. Oh, this is a horrible thing to do. It's going to hurt me. Well, it's going to hurt you. All this kind of thing. I'm really sorry. I don't really want to do this, but I'm going to have to. We've got no choice. They're not doing it like that at all, are they? They're doing it with complete disdain and mockery. And people, people mock God on a regular basis. I hear them. People mock God on a regular basis. And they have no idea what they're doing. You can, you can mock God openly, saying, God's pathetic. I hate him. He's cruel. Who does he think he is? All that kind of, I hear people talking about it quite often. It's like, do you realize what you're saying? But it can also be hidden. Mockery can be hidden. And we, without realizing, can mock God. Because Charles G. Finney puts it really helpfully. He's, a, uh, he's an American preacher from the 19th century. He wrote this once. He said, to mock God is to pretend to love and serve him when we do not. To act in a false manner to be insincere and hypocritical in our professions, what we profess. 
pretending to obey him, love, serve and worship him when we do not. Mocking God grieves the Holy Spirit and sears the conscience and thus the bands of sin become stronger and stronger. I'm sure for each one of us in the, in, in the room, room we've, we've all been liable for that, haven't we, at times? It's a very dangerous game to play. So Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And also in uh, Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus speaks to the seven churches, in those letters there, Jesus says repeatedly, I know your works, doesn't he? That phrase keeps coming up, I know your works, I know what's going on. You can't fool me, don't mock me. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. I know your works. We can't treat Jesus with contempt and think we're going to get away with it. We're in this sentence, aren't we? Delivered over, mocked. What's the next bit? They'll be shamefully treated and spit upon. Spitting on someone is pretty offensive, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, see if you ask if you've done it. But uh, I think it's a pretty horrible thing, isn't it? it? It may only be a globular spittle, but it's classed as common assault in UK law. You can get up to six months prison for it. And for very good reason. Hygiene reasons, for starters, the person who's spitting could have a highly infectious, dangerous disease, you know, whatever. But also, it's, a good, it's an intimate invasion of someone's personal space. But it's also what it's saying as well. The meaning behind it is saying, you're beneath me, you're like dirt to me. To spit on someone, isn't it? And that's what these people are doing, or will do, to Jesus. They'll spit on him. And again, it's easy for us in modern Britain, in 21st century, to look back on these people 2,000 years ago and just tut. Oh, it's awful. How dare they? Never catch me doing that. I'm not that kind of person, I wouldn't spit. But it's like the mocking, we can think we don't do it, but we do, we still spit in his face in different ways. Adam and Eve, when they were choosing fruit on a tree instead of God's loving divine command, they were spitting in his face really, weren't they? That's what it is, it's treating him with contempt. And whenever we choose something other than him to be our God, we choose somewhere else for our much needed, desired um, contentment. No, I'm going to be happier if, I'm, if I do this or if I'm over here. We're spitting in his face, aren't we? This is God. I'd rather have this than you, but thanks. It's lowering God in our estimation of who he is and thinking we're better and we know better. That's what we're doing, aren't we? We are just as much in this sentence as the Jews 2,000 years ago. A couple more. Uh, what comes next? After being spit upon, after flogging him. There's that one word. And we read it. When you come to the actual account of the, the trial and his treatment before they kill him, it just goes, and they flogged him. Lovely little sentence. And they flogged him. Oh, must have tickled. Moving on. Don't realize what that means. What helps us is, again, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson film. That scene, brutal. There's a reason why it's got a high certificate. Brutal. What they used to do, they used to, there'd be barbs on the end of the whips. And when they, when they whip you, flesh comes off with it to the point where you can see the bone. This is not some surface wound. This is deep. Jesus willingly endured that when he could have called down his angels at any point and they had every right to, didn't they? Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'll do anything to avoid pain. I've got, I've got a blood blister from a 
doing my patio. I did this one four weeks ago, and that one still hurts. Now I've done this one as well the other day. Oh, it hurts. But it's only a bruise. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's only a bruise. That's bad enough. Jesus willingly endured this to rescue us. He willingly went through this when he didn't have to. And then finally, it says, and they will kill him and he will rise again. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. Jesus died. He didn't faint. He, he wasn't swapped for a looky-likey. There's some theories, conspiracy theories and other beliefs, other religions believe. Jesus categorically died and his lungs were crushed by his own body weight until he could breathe no more. There's a reason when we think about the day we're going to die, we think, oh, I hope I die in my sleep. That's the nice one, isn't it? There's a reason why we all hope for that one, isn't there? But death by crushed lung is pretty unthinkable, isn't it? He, Jesus of Nazareth, man of history, categorically died, taking our place as the ultimate sacrifice so that we might live. It all happened. It's in the history books. The evidence is there. That's why Jesus, in verse 31, uh, sorry, verse... Uh, where is it? Not verse 31. Yeah, verse 31. Uh, Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Every messianic prophecy, everything that was foretold what would happen to the great rescuer when he came, what was, uh, was written hundreds of years before, have actually come true. Micah wrote about where Jesus would be born. And he did. He was born there. Uh, Isaiah wrote about how he would be born, and it happened that way. Isaiah, again, in the book of Genesis, 2 Samuel wrote about which bloodline Jesus would come from, and he did. Um, Hosea wrote that he'd become a refugee in his early years, and he did. Isaiah, again, wrote about where he would later live in Galilee, and he did. Uh, Isaiah, again, and Zechariah wrote about what he would do, and he did these things. Isaiah, again, that old favorite, and Psalms, they wrote about that he would be despised, he would be rejected, and he would be killed with very specific details, and he fulfilled each one of those. Now, how can someone arrange to be born in a particular family or a particular city that is different to where your parents actually live? How can you arrange that? Can't if you're human. How can you arrange your particular manner of death and the details that your executioners will gamble your clothes away and not break any of your bones, even though though that's what they did to everyone else? You can't arrange that if you're human. And how can you arrange to escape the grave and appear to large numbers of people after you've died? You can't if you're human. What are the chances? But Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. It all happened. The chances, someone's done some calculations and they've been vetted by others, independent and all that, and it really works. These are conservative numbers. The chances of fulfilling just eight of these prophecies is 10 to the power of 17. That's 10 with 16 zeros after it. That's the chances of one person fulfilling eight of those prophecies. That is the same chances as if you take the whole of France and cover it in 10 Ps, 10 P coins, two foot deep. All of France, two foot deep pile of 10p coins, and one of them you've made a little mark on, and you blindfold a friend and tell them to walk around for days as long as they want, at any point, stop, stop, stoop down, pick up a coin. The chances of them picking up your marked coin, that are the chances of one person fulfilling eight of these prophecies. It's ridiculous, it's impossible. 
But Jesus of Nazareth didn't fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled over 300 of them, 29 in one day. This is Jesus being the proven God in flesh, dying for us and rising again that we might live. And that, in its entirety, I've got to say, is probably the most absolute fact on this planet. It's undeniable. It happened. And yet, this is where I want to come to my third M, the mystery. Because not everyone does believe, even if the facts have been laid out for them. Why is that? Because no matter how much we reason and explain and spell things out and draw pretty pictures, no one enters the kingdom through logic, through doing a mass equation that adds up. It's not common sense that saves you. Salvation is our, it's our spiritual blindness being repaired by the great healer, opening our eyes, isn't it? We can't pull the scales away from our eyes, but he can. It's his light shining into our darkness, letting us truly see for the first time. It's him doing it. Our salvation is his life-giving spirit, putting breath in our soul's lungs, if you like, and reviving our dead hearts. That's salvation. It's not just adding up the evidence. It starts and ends with him, which proves it's a gift and is not earned. If salvation was just because I've done all the sums, I've looked at the evidence, and this is the best of all the religions, this one must be true, that doesn't save you. You've earned that. Salvation is still a gift. It's him seeing your heart to want to know and then putting breath in your lungs and opening your eyes. That's salvation, isn't it? It's a gift. And so Christianity, belief in and following of Jesus Christ as our Lord, it's all about revelation. It's a revelation to one's very spirit of who Christ is, who we are without him, and who we are once we're in him. It's having that revealed to us, isn't it? And I know everyone here can tell that story. You know Christ. The Bible is very clear that while it does make sense rationally when you piece it together... <laughs> the Christian faith it is historically robust, as I've been pointing out. It's philosophically robust, it's scientifically robust, it's experientially robust, it's all there. But it's not simply a rational conclusion that you can just come to when you're looking at the evidence. It requires Holy Spirit, God himself, opening the eyes of your heart to see him in all his glory and all his mercy. I've known a lot of people, I've sat down with them one-to-one, -one, a lot of people where we've walked, walked through this stuff and they've gone, yeah, I get it, I agree, it all makes sense. Yeah, I'll see what you're saying. And I'm like, we can do with it. They go, yeah, I'm going to think about it. But you've just agreed with me, it makes sense and it all adds up, we've laid it all out. I've drawn the pretty pictures, you know, if you like. But they're still unable, it comes to a point, they're still unable to make that step of commitment and they drift off into other things. I know them, they're still in town now. Like, but you saw what I saw, didn't you? Well, no, not fully. They didn't. Because they weren't looking at it from the right angle and they weren't seeking him to open the eyes of their heart. It's up to Holy Spirit who knows people's hearts and hidden desires to do the saving. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then John 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. But this, is, this doesn't, isn't just for people who don't know Christ and how they come to know him through Holy Spirit's help, right? It's more than that. 
Because what is happening here in these verses, we need to realize this is just as much for us as it is um, for people who don't know him yet. Revelation doesn't stop when you become a Christian. Because what actually is actually happening in verse 34, but they understood none of these things. Who's they? It's the disciples. It's the 12, isn't it? But they understood. He just spelt it out black and white. It couldn't be clearer. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again. This is what's happening. They go, I don't know what you're saying. See, it's blatant. It's in front of them. But they need revelation. They, the disciples, who already believe in who he is, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. There is always more revelation for us, his people. We're just scratching the surface. Once you're saved, you've only just started. Amen? There's always more that we're missing. And the road to Emmaus, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. Cleopas and, I think it's his, it presumed to be his wife. It seems to be a couple. And they're together for ages. And they're talking about, oh, we've heard these wonderful things. And Jesus is going, oh, tell me about it. I'm right here. And they're together with him for ages and they don't realize who he is. And it's only when they go to the home and they have a meal and they're breaking the bread together. Verse 31 in Luke 24, it says, Then their eyes were opened. They've been looking at Jesus for hours, but they hadn't seen him. There's still more revelation for his own people. It takes divine revelation to see Jesus for who he is. And Lord, may we have more of that. That's my heart, that's my prayer. I just want to finish now. Just a quick summary of what we, what we just learned. The son, he, he is the Son of Man. He is endless, almighty God himself who came to die at our hands that we might be rescued from our brokenness. And he suffered indignities and abuse, agony and so on, and he did so unwaveringly, without regret, without flinching, and with only joy in his heart. God himself. And he did that for you and for me. Now, all of that might be a mystery to you. Maybe you're looking around and thinking, I still don't get these people. I don't, they seem really excited about something. That seems to make some sense, but I don't get it. It hasn't gripped me. We are not special people. Uh, we're not the clever ones who've managed to work it out and discover the truth by our own clever homework. It's only because he opened our eyes as we sought him. We're only able to see and receive him for who he is because he has opened our eyes and he can open yours. The Bible says, ask, seek, knock. It will be given to you. It will be revealed to you. You'll find it. The door will be opened. You start asking, I'll start showing. It's for him to show us, isn't it? Seek him out. But for us as his people, if you do know him as your Lord and rescuer, you may have been his for a matter of months, matter of years, matter of decades, but we're still only scratching the surface in discovering the delights that are available in him. Just scratching the surface. So my prayer is that we don't mock him in our disregard or assumptions, but instead we just ask him to reveal more of him and more of him and more of him. Just like more, <laughs> more. More isn't enough. <laughs> Lord, will you just show us more of your astonishing glory and your mercy, just as you promised you would? 
Let's be seeking more of him, amen? Let me just pray for us. Lord, like I just said, more is not enough because you are unending. Your love is unfathomable, but that's not, that's not to mean we shouldn't even start. There's an endless gold mine in you of knowing more of your love, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your, your uh, intervention, your involvement, your power, your majesty, your, your justice, your righteousness. Lord, all of it, Lord. Let us never assume we're there. We thank you that you've made yourself available. You live in unapproachable light, but you've made yourself approachable through Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Those of us that know you, we thank you that you opened our eyes to see you. The gift of salvation is ours because of you. But Lord, let each one of us in this room be seeking you all the more. Daily, hourly. Lord, I need more of you so that you might eclipse everything else in this life and be our number one. Help us. By Holy Spirit's help, we can't do it on our own. We're fickle, we're human, easily distracted. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.